0: hi and welcome to history of portugal i'm rob Mendez, and this is episode four shut them down open up shop last time we took a wide lensed view of the arab conquest of the levant and north africa this episode we will finally begin the spectacularly rapid conquest of most of the Iberian Peninsula by the North African Muslim forces. So, I gotta tell you, this specific time period has been particularly challenging to research. Just about every scholar I've come across that tackles the Muslim conquest of Iberia begins their work with a lengthy analysis of the problematic written sources. The modern consensus is that even though we have a fair number of these sources, we cannot treat them all as reliable. We need to understand that each source reflects a viewpoint that is very much rooted in the time and place that it was written in. Additionally, we must keep in mind that just about all the sources we have for this time period were written after the events they describe. So they are tainted by hindsight, anachronisms, folklore, along with religious and political propaganda thrown in for good measure. The reality is, that what we know for certain are just bare facts, and of those, not many. I will do my best to give you a simplified, streamlined version of these events for the sake of keeping the narrative moving. But be warned that, among scholars, there is disagreement over a whole bunch of details pertaining to these early years of the conquest. Seriously, it's all over the place. With that disclaimer out of the way, let's get started. Much changed in the Iberian Peninsula since the early years of the Visigothic Conquest. Since the ascension of King Leovigild, the Visigothic kingdom had, for the most part, maintained relative peace and stability for over 150 years. By this point, the kingship had evolved into a hybrid of elected and hereditary monarchy, Whereupon, upon the king's death, the bishops and the nobles of the kingdom would gather in the capital city of Toledo to elect a new king. Of course, people being as they are, fathers tended to want to leave the kingship to their sons. Sometimes they could pull it off, but there were other noble families that vied for the crown, so hereditary succession was the goal by those who had the throne, but frowned upon by the rest of the nobility. Which brings us to the fateful year of 710 AD, when King Witizia of the Visigoths died, leaving the throne to his son, Ocula. However, the event of Witizia's death was perhaps no accident, as many sources claim that a Visigothic noble named Roderick, who, with the support of some of the clergy and nobility, overthrew Witizia. But this wasn't a completely successful coup. There were still those who remained loyal to Acula, and of course those who had their eye on the throne for themselves. The timeline and details for exactly what happened next is, of course, say it with me, badly documented, that's right. It seems like there was a period of civil war or at least skirmishes between Aquila and Roderick. Shortly after, it appears that the Basque population of northern Spain launched a rebellion compelling Roderick and his army to head to the north to quell this rebellion. Meanwhile, back in Tangiers, Tarek ben Zayed had been conducting raids on the southern shores of Spain. It's possible that it's at this time that Tarek caught wind of the strife that was besetting the Visigothic kingdom. And this presented an opportunity that was just too good to pass up. Nothing makes a juicier target for raiders than a kingdom in disarray. And so, on April 11th of 711 AD, possibly on his own initiative, Tadak and his Berber army crossed the strait and landed on the site that gives the strait its name, Gibraltar. The Berbers proceeded to raid the countryside and small towns of the southern shores eventually establishing a base of operations in the town of Algericas. Back up north, Roderick and the bulk of his forces were no doubt informed about the Berber attacks on the southern edges of the kingdom. It took the Visigoths about two or three months to make their way back to the south with the intention of meeting the Berbers in battle. Now... When it comes to troop numbers, ancient and medieval sources are notorious for exaggeration. And I mean notorious. Accounts state that Berber forces numbered between seven to 12,000 men versus 100,000 Visigoths. These numbers are, in short, ridiculous. A more sober assessment puts these numbers at around two to 3,000 Berbers against maybe three to 5,000 Visigoths. But the truth be told is we just have no idea really. Now, this may sound like a very small Visigothic army. But if you'll recall episode 2, where we briefly went through the Visigothic social structure, I mentioned that the ruling elite and their pledged warriors were a very small minority. There were perhaps only a couple of dozen families that held all the economic power in the peninsula, and they're the ones who made up the royal court, so their numbers would be limited. In any case, our sources provide no description of the ensuing battle. All we know is that around July 20th, Tarek and Roderick's forces clashed in battle and the Visigoths were completely wrecked by the Berbers. Roderick himself was killed, along with a sizable chunk of the accompanying nobility. There are also reports of treacherous nobles deliberately abandoning Roderick at the crucial time of battle. There are even claims of Visigoths siding with the Berbers in order to ensure his defeat. Presumably with the assumption that once the Berbers defeated Roderick, they would simply gather their spoils and go back to Tangiers, leaving the surviving Visigothic nobility free and clear to elect a new king. But this is not what happened. Capitalizing on his spectacular victory, Tarek dispatched a force to take the city of Cordoba, while he himself moved to the Visigothic capital of Toledo. There was perhaps little to no resistance as a sizable amount of the population abandoned the city. Some sources claim that once in Toledo, Tadek executed a number of Visigothic nobles. He was then able to spend the winter of 711 to 712 AD in the city. The loss of the capital city exposed a critical weakness in the Visigothic political structure as it stood in the 8th century. The result of losing the capital, the king, and a large portion of the upper aristocracy had a huge paralyzing effect on the political system of the kingdom. By design, the whole thing depended on having the most powerful nobles and clergy gather in the capital city to select a new ruler. That is how it was done. But what if most of the upper nobility is dead? and the capital is taken, then you can't really do that, can you? This is not to say that all of the Visigothic nobility was eradicated, simply that the biggest players were removed from the board. There were plenty of lesser regional nobles still around, but individually they did not possess the resources to resist the conquerors. And on the flip side, as we've seen earlier, the conquerors were not that numerous and so did not possess the manpower necessary to occupy every town and city they encountered. Some towns and cities attempted to resist with varying degrees of success, but for the most part, the Berbers and the local lords made treaties or pacts whereby the city or town wasn't attacked and the local lord maintained his lands and titles, usually in exchange for supplies and money needed for the Berber army. Back in North Africa, Musa ibn Usayed learned of the many victories his subordinate was stacking up and decided that it simply wouldn't do to have his social inferior hogging all the glory. So, he decided to get in on the action while the getting was good. We are told that he gathered a force of around 18,000 men that included many Arabs. Once again, this number is improbably large. But however large his army may have been, Musa and his forces set sail and landed in Algericas. From there, Musa went on to capture the fortress of Cremona and the city of Seville. He then made his way north to the city of Merida, of St. Eulalia fame, where he encountered fierce resistance that actually required siege engines to be deployed. Finally, in July of 713, Merida was taken. While all this was going on, Musa sent his son Abd al-Aziz to the southeast of the peninsula to the district of Murcia. When he arrived, he was met by the local leading Visigothic noble, Theodomir. It's from this meeting that we get a specific example of the type of treaties that were probably being hammered out at this point in time. The terms of the treaty guaranteed freedom of Christian worship and local autonomy. In exchange for, and this is the actual list, cash, wheat, barley, thickened grape juice, vinegar, honey, and oil. As you can tell, this is a very pragmatic agreement, and it's illustrative of the needs of the Muslim forces. Supply lines were probably very limited, if non-existent. And once again, the conquerors were not in a position to be garrisoning cities. Better to receive at least a token submission for now, and the supplies you need to keep on moving, than to get bogged down trying to use force on everyone you come across. Fresh off of his conquest of Merida, Musa then headed to Toledo, where he was to meet up with Tarek to consolidate their forces. When they licked up, sources indicate that tensions were running high. Neither one of them was quite sure of the intentions of the other. If Tarek did in fact act on his own initiative when he launched the invasion, what else could he be planning? And why did Musa show up now? Was he planning on confiscating the hard-earned plunder that the Berbers fought for? These were the types of questions and anxieties that were swirling about. But even though tensions were high, Musa and Tarek somehow managed to get back on good terms and decided to winter their armies together in Toledo. Then, after everybody was good and rested, in the following spring of 714, you better believe that things were on and popping. With the newly reinforced Muslim army campaigning all the way to Galicia in the northwest, to the Ebro Valley in the northeast. This was one hell of a campaign that resulted in a long trail of at least nominally submitted territory. But the good times couldn't last forever. At the peak of their accomplishments in conquest, both Tariq and Musa received summons to return immediately to Damascus and report to the Caliph. By all accounts, the pair were not thrilled about having to return to Syria. But they dutifully left Spain in September of 714, with Musa leaving his son Abdulaziz as governor of this newly created province. Neither Tariq or Musa would ever return to Spain again. Their departure makes for a convenient stopping point for us to take a step back and take stock of what just happened. While it's true that the Muslim forces made their way through most of the peninsula, the conquest was by no means complete. It seems that the general strategy employed was divided into two parts. The first part focused more on the southern regions and boiled down to taking control of the major urban centers, their surrounding farmlands, and importantly, securing lines of communication. This network of controlled cities formed the basic scaffolding upon which further expansion and administration could be built upon. The second part focused on the Northeast, where there seems to be evidence that none other than Acula was still in power, though his domain straddled the Pyrenees, encompassing parts of modern-day southwestern France and northeastern Spain. Akhila aside, though, peace agreements were made with the Visigothic lords of the Ebro Valley and with some of the lords of the more remote mountainous territories of the Ebro. There has been much debate over the centuries on how and why the Muslim conquest was so successful in such a remarkably short period of time. When we look back at the medieval sources, predictably, Muslim sources state that the reason for their success is obvious. God is on their side. Christian sources faced a more difficult question. Why has God abandoned the Christian people? Also unsurprisingly, the answer they come to was that they were being punished for their sins. Or at least for the sins of the Visigothic kings. And I say unsurprisingly because the conclusion they arrived at is straight out of the Bible especially in the Old Testament. Anytime God's people strayed from the path, they would be punished. But what do modern historians have to say about this event? Of course, there are many factors to take into account when trying to answer this question. The first thing that should catch our attention is that there was only one large battle that pretty much settled the whole thing. Not only that, but there doesn't seem like there was any attempt to raise a second large army. And that may seem odd at first glance. There are several possible answers. One explanation for this is that the Visigoths were victims of their own success. By continuing to centralize and consolidate military and political power at the very top, it actually left the Visigoths in a very precarious position. I mean, the population at large was forbidden from even owning weapons. Had the kingdom been more fractured, with more powerful regional lords who possessed their own military resources, well, things could maybe have turned out differently. Another point of consideration was the political state that the kingdom was in by the time Tariq and the Berbers arrived. Roderick was not universally supported. As mentioned before, some sources indicate that various nobles either abandoned Roderick at the time of battle, or sided with the Berbers, seeking to use them for their own gains. It could also very well be that the Visigoths in general just didn't take the invasion that seriously. They may not even even seen it as an invasion at all, but just merely as raiding. And if there were indeed Visigothic nobles aiding the Berbers, then it's very possible that to the average observer, this looked a lot like, if not a civil war, then something close to it. Additionally, I've seen it stated by multiple scholars that most of the common people really didn't care about the Visigothic aristocracy at all. So there wasn't really any support to band together against the Muslims. And to add on to this already obscure and confusing situation, there are also claims that Musa had to be convinced by Tariq to let Muslims remain and settle in Iberia. So, even among the conquerors there was disagreement as to whether this was a true mission of conquest or not. But regardless of what anyone thought, the bare fact is that the Muslim settlement and rule in Iberia did begin at this point. And a big reason that Muslim rule was implemented so quickly and effectively was their generous terms of surrender. Balanced out, of course, with the harsh consequences of resistance. We have already seen earlier that surrender without struggle usually resulted in the local status quo being more or less maintained. In contrast to this, the two cities that actually resisted suffered a different fate. In Córdoba, the defenders were just all straight up killed. In Manida, the property of those who fought to defend the city and those who fled the city after it fell was confiscated. Church property was also confiscated. But those who hadn't fought were allowed to keep their property. As long as they paid a land tax and a poll tax, they could carry on as before. For now, at least. There is even an account that claims that one of the sons of the late king Witizia, a Christian count named Arbabast, was put in charge of collecting these taxes, as opposed to a Muslim official. Even in the later stages of the conquest, the Visigothic lords of the Ebro Valley were all allowed to maintain their lands and titles. Those same lords would subsequently convert to Islam and form some of the most important dynasties of the area, maintaining their power for over two centuries after the Muslim conquest. So, these are just some examples how things, they're not clear-cut and they're not black and white as we tend to assume or as we are sometimes even taught. Because people are complicated. The Muslims called their conquered land in Iberia Al-Andalus, which means land of the vandals, a name that reflects the distant past when the vandals resided in southern Iberia. The settlement of Al-Andalus was not an organized affair by any stretch. There was no central authority distributing land to settlers. Instead, it seems that these decisions were made locally. Shortly after the initial conquest, Córdoba became the new capital city. It's not 100% clear as to why Córdoba was selected over the previous capital city of Toledo. But it seems like Córdoba was selected because it was located at the intersection of various communication and trade routes. It was also surrounded by very rich agricultural lands a fact that would prove very valuable for future rulers in need of a reliable source of supplies for their armies. As settlers arrived, people of the same ethnic and tribal groups tended to settle together in the same areas. It seems that the Arabs usually established themselves in the major cities and in the fertile irrigated lands, such as the Ebro Valley, Zaragoza, and Murcia. Of the Arabs that came over, the majority of them belonged to Yemeni tribes who came from areas that already boasted cities, sophisticated villages, and farms. These people would have been most comfortable with urban and agricultural life. A lot of them would have also been second or third generation immigrants from North Africa and would have grown up in the medium and large cities that dotted the African coast. Besides acquiring land through conquest, some Muslims married the daughters of the previous Visigothic owners and acquired land through inheritance. A prime example of this is when Abdalaziz himself married Roderick's daughter. There are also claims that Sarah, granddaughter of King Witizia, married two different Arab husbands back to back which actually gave rise to an important dynasty. We can see here the Arabs were in the process of mixing in with the Visigothic aristocracy in order not only to gain inheritance rights but to increase their legitimacy to rule over the local populace. This is just what conquerors do. If you'll recall, this is exactly what the Visigoths did when they invaded the peninsula. The Berbers seem to have been widely dispersed through Al-Andalus. The Meseta Central was particularly attractive to those who were pastoralists, while the suburbs of Mérida and Toledo were dominated by Berber populations who were used to irrigated agriculture. Though we can trace these general trends of immigration and settlement, We should be cognizant that these events are always much more complex than what they appear, and this apparent little neat division of wealth and property will not last forever, as more settlers will arrive in Iberia in the ensuing decades and demand a share of the wealth, and therefore inadvertently causing major disruptions and conflict. But that is a story for another day. Next time on History of Portugal, we will continue to make our way through the first quarter of the 8th century and cover what is known as the period of the governors and begin the Muslim invasion of France. Thanks for listening.